0: Slate's Serial Spoiler Special is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Right now, get a free audiobook of your choice when you visit audible.com spoiler. The following podcast contains explicit language. Previously on the Serial Spoiler Special.
1: Let's talk about this question of anti-Muslim sentiment.
2: It was eye-opening to hear that that's the way people were talking about him. Sarah framed the issue of anti-Muslim
3: sentiment by starting out saying, ah, you know, David, you seem to be agreeing with me, maybe.
1: Well, I agree with you on one count, but totally disagree with you on another. Episode 10 is where we're going
4: to hear about $10,000 being demanded in cash by a lawyer.
3: You can't get everybody. Some people say no to the interview. Jay. I was totally
2: underwhelmed by the Nisha call. You could totally misremember something if you
3: add importance to it. She's not sure, but like, she would not convict him.
2: These guys are so
0: fucking wily.
1: Hi, I'm David Hagland, a senior editor at Slate. And welcome to the spoiler special podcast about Serial, the multi-part investigative series from This American Life. Every Thursday we talk about the latest episode, and every Thursday I'm joined by Slate staff writer Katie Waldman. And this week she's here with me in New York. Hey, Katie.
2: Hey, David. Nice to see you.
1: Good to see you, too. And our guest this week is Wesley Morris, Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic for Grantland and co-host of his own podcast, Do You Like Prince Movies? Good to have you, Wesley.
4: Hi, y'all. What's going on?
1: A lot, actually. That's
4: that's how I would put it.
1: Uh, But let's get into it. We're talking about episode 11 of Serial this week. It was called Rumors. Later, we're going to talk with one of the musicians who composes some of the music you hear on Serial. And before we even talk about this episode, I want to hear again how it was set up last week.
3: Technically, Adnan is eligible for parole, but the chances of getting it are so slim for anyone with a life sentence for first-degree murder, but especially if you don't show remorse. Because, you know, what if he's a psychopath, right? Next time on Serial.
1: So that's how Sarah Koenig set up this week's episode. And she did, of course, get into this question of whether he's a psychopath or not. But to my mind, you know, I'm breaking this up in my head into three different things that I hope we can talk about. The first of them, the first uh, of those three things is what other people told her about Adnan. We heard from a bunch of different people. Uh, then we did talk, you know, she spoke to uh, an expert who has a lot of experience testing uh, people who have been convicted of murder psychologically, and she talked about this question of, of psychopathy and, and whether Adnan has exhibited any signs of it and so on. And then third, we we heard a lot more from Adnan himself and really got into his relationship to Sarah Koenig and to the show right. at, at this point. So I, so I hope we can... Uh, Talk about all three of those things. First, I just want to say this: for me, was the most intense listening experience of the show so far.
2: Really?
4: Yeah. yeah was that was it not like that for you guys? Uh, I would say the J episode for me was the most intense one, because um, there was a lot of expectation for what would come out of that. Um, I think this was the most the the, the last two the 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 Gutierrez. The lawyer episode and then um, Cynthia Gutierrez and, and the Adnan episode today. The, the, the sequence where he explains, he sort the, of gets angry at her. Yeah, the letter,
1: you mean, basically.
4: The letter, yeah. but then the phone call where she presents him with this stealing with, these, with rumor about stealing from the mosque. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, in so many ways, what we've been listening to for the last 11 episodes or 11 weeks has been or 10 weeks, I guess, is this the li- This guy's life. Two lives, you know, Haley's life and Anand's life. And there's so much at stake for both what happened to her and what is going to happen to him. I have a great deal of empathy for his situation as an observed person of color. I have a great deal of sympathy for his human situation of being... In a position that he's that he swears he is innocent of. Um, and then to have this woman digging around in your life with the with the the possibility, not the promise, of, of exoneration. It's it just there's so much going on here, and he is handling it with so much tolerance.
2: I mean, he has a lot of grace when he's talking to her. And it was crazy when he he had that sort of dam-breaking moment and he said, you're my executioner, you're my savior, I don't know which. And it just sort of brought home how powerful she is. And it's not like she really asked for that power necessarily, but she really, she wields it. And it is really eye-opening to hear from Adnan.
1: Well, that, I mean, to me, this podcast basically lays bare what journalists do when Mm -hmm. they are investigating a a story with really high stakes, where they don't know exactly what happened. You know, we are seeing in a way we don't usually see. It's obviously very carefully constructed and there's a lot of stuff that gets left out and and Koenig and the other producers choose what we're going to hear and what they're going to talk about. But we're still seeing the process much more plainly than you would in, in most magazine stories. And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. To me, it's not more uncomfortable than, than other stories if you stop and think about what's involved, but the, but the process is being presented. Even to, to start at the beginning of this episode, when she talks to these various people who are coming to... This is unusual, right? She, they're coming to her after having heard a few episodes of Serial. Right, right. They're people from the mosque, and, um, you know, a few of them don't want to be identified. And so they were hearing, you know, altered voices and they're making these accusations against him and she's weighing those accusations. Now, any journalist would have to do that, but normally they would have done that all before and and then put down on paper yes. their conclusions. And here she's kind of actually presenting some of that process for us. And it's I, th- that's what I mean by intense. I mean, for me, it was just so fraught hearing these accusations against him, some of which, you know, were... Uh, It seemed, you know, either baseless or there was an obvious agenda at work or we were soon going to learn that they were exaggerating something. One guy who says that, you know, Adnan stole from the mosque at the very end of the clip we hear from him says, I did it too.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I also did this.
2: I mean, I actually felt like this episode was one of the first where I was really aware of the show presenting a red herring. And like to some extent, mm-hmm. this is what happened with she does the this, setup.
4: Yeah. yeah, she does this a lot.
2: Yeah, but like the idea of psychopathy, it seems like she had ruled this out a while ago. Her conversations were not leading her to that conclusion, yet she dangled it in front of us at the end of last episode and basically framed this episode as, is, you know, is he or is he not a psychopath? And it. It just sort of the genuineness and the, again, that power differential that you were talking about before um, juxtaposed with, like, my awareness of how contrived this psychopathy framing was just was, like, really disturbing. And it's not, I, I don't want to fault Sarah for that. Like, I think it's a really interesting question, and it's something that was probably generated by a lot of the responses to serial in real time, like people saying. I
1: disagree. I, okay. I think this was always a question she was going to have to ask. Huh. I mean, I, I don't know. There's a, This American American Life episode called the Psychopath Test, and and sh- and Koenig was working at this American Life at the time, and everyone on staff took the psychopath mm-hmm, test. Mm-hmm. They all clearly learned a fair amount of it. It's a it. really so good episode. It is really too. good. It's, I re- re-listened to it this week, and it's worth listening to. But she did obviously know something about this subject before, but I I took this as a sincere investigation into, uh, okay, wh- what can I know? What what should I feel comfortable? Uh, you know. Concluding from these conversations that I'm having with this guy, who else can I talk to to give me some perspective on this? Right. So I, it, it's it like I said, it's awkward to listen to, but but partly because I think we're just we're hearing that process. In what I we think
4: don't. What, I think what Katie was responding to is the convention of the form, though, right? I mm-hmm. mean, because what she did last week was kind of a DM like dick move. Because, <laughs> I mean, but the, but the entire format of a serial. And of cliffhangers is is all dick moves. It's all yeah. it's all about you being like, what? <laughs> right. And, and also, we'll we should be back get next to the week.
2: mic drop at the end of this episode. Right. Like, holy crap! Okay, but we'll, <laughs> yeah, right. We'll, we'll there. get
4: but, there. I mean, I think that the framing, the psychopath framing, what I thought would happen, but I mean, I should know better because she actually is much more interested in the nuances of everything mm-hmm. um, than those those mic drops. Or the and the cliffhangers would imply that she would be in the next episode. Yeah. So what she's actually setting up in in episode ten is we're going to spend two hours talking about what a like whether or not Anon is really just out of his mind and whether he could have done this in a in a. But it really obviously, you know, the Geraldo Rivera serial podcast would probably <laughs> be all about that. Right. But but I mean I think. You just don't know. And her whole agenda is to produce. All she's doing is what Gutierrez was trying to do, which is to plant a seed of reasonable doubt. It is not to exonerate him, although if that winds up being the outcome of, of what her, her reporting leads her to, right. fine, great. But I think it is just to plant in us... And hopefully, in people with some some power, I don't know what the legal options are. Which she, I think, those that needs to come up at some point too. I
1: think she'll talk. I suspect that she'll talk about it next week. You know, there is, a, it's it's not exactly a new appeal, but there is an appeal that is going forward in a in a new way. Um, and so, I imagine next week, maybe we'll get an episode uh, on the Innocence Project right. and and so on. But but yeah, you're right, Wesley. I don't think that, I don't think that she went into this thinking. You know, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I think she hoped she might, and she was going to do her darndest tr- to try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but I don't think there was that expectation. What happens is in constructing a story, you raise expectations for a lot of listeners, like, oh, we're going to find out what really happened. And, I, and to me, it's been clear for quite a while now that we probably aren't. Right. Now it's totally clear. We almost <laughs> right. certainly aren't. Right. And then, so what do you do with that? And in terms of the power of the journalist, what's one of the things that makes this story unusual is as I think about this as someone who pitches stories and say, OK, if I went to my editor and said, I want to write about this case, I don't know what happened. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to figure out what happened. Most people have never heard of this case. Uh, can I write it? And, you know, they might say no. I, you know, the. It, there, this isn't about a, a larger subject except insofar, I think, as it's sort of about the legal process more generally and how hard it is to know things. And that's, it's you know, as opposed to, say, a case where there was an obvious miscarriage of justice. There was a specific kind of right, miscarriage right, right. of justice and you're going to write about that specific miscarriage. This is a different kind of story.
4: Right. When you say that there's nothing larger, do you mean that, 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 that there's nothing... The question, I mean, because for me, I feel like there's so many things that are bigger than she is. And she wasn't aware of how big those things were until the public got the show.
1: So what give me an example. I mean, I'm, I, I think, think this I question about, about, about
4: the Muslim community, yeah. I don't know where she thought she was going to go with that before people began listening to the show. And it's like you guys talked about last week with who she thinks the listener of this show is. The truth is everybody's listening to this show. And everybody's got a stake in its outcome and its production and the way she talks about certain people and certain communities. And I think everybody has their guard up. Everybody is open to any possibility. I mean, not anybody, but I think a lot of a lot of us listening to this are open to whatever she presents us. And then, you know, we take it and process it ourselves. But we're doing in some ways a kind of detective work with her detective work, right? Yeah. And I think that all gives us a sort of secondhand ownership in this in this in this show. Um and I don't know if she was really prepared for how much ownership people are going to have with pot with with, with cereal and how much of that ownership is gonna be Muslim. It's gonna be women, it's gonna be people of color who are naturally and somewhat justifiably, justifiably skeptical of this sort of white savior narrative that she is not directly creating for herself, but is weighted into just by virtue of of the racial dynamics of the case and her relationship to it. Yeah.
2: Although, can we say, I mean, what did you guys think of the portrayal of the Muslim community in this episode? Cuz I thought she actually did a pretty nice job saying like I'm from a small town. Right. I totally get this. This is not some weird alien remote thing like
4: I think that she's been mischaracterized as being insensitive and mm-hmm. clueless too. I think her cluelessness in many ways is is a weapon at reporting. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I think that she is fully aware of the privilege she has as a white woman waiting into a case involving urban people of color. I think she knows all the power dynamics. What I don't think she was prepared for is the degree to which her audience is not the typical what 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 one would deem the typical this American life listener. What that guy Ali when she talks to her about when he mentions you know well when when NPR listeners hear this right. they will assume xyz yeah. i think there's a way in which he gets sort of narrow cast what this what the the serial listener would be i think the serial listener is everybody i've talked to so many different people of so many different backgrounds socioeconomic racial gender like life experience people who know people in prison people who have been in prison and i think that they're all listening to this show because I just don't think there's been anything like this, where the, the the airing out of the of the entire process has been made so accessibly plain, um, and also kind of dramatic and moral in 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 other ways too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that I mean that brings to me the most intense moment in this episode is is when we do hear from adnan and when he writes this letter there's apparently 18 single space pages and it i found it so illuminating to finally you know get some uh, you know background some context for for the voice that we're hearing Mm -hmm. because a lot of what we got was like here's here's why for instance you know i meaning adnan have have not Pointed the finger at anyone. Have not pointed to Jay. Have not, you know, been impugning the various uh, testimonies you're hearing in a specific way because he because he knows exactly the situation that he's in, because he knows the opportunity that uh, this podcast provides, but also the dangers, also the risks involved. And so he's saying, mm-hmm. you know, look, th- this is a very complicated relationship. I know it's complicated. I can't show compassion for you because I don't want people to think that I'm trying to charm you. Right. Or no, you that over? Really, yeah. I mean,
4: I, I don't you guys made me listen to this podcast in a way I don't normally do, which is like refreshing till it shows up. <laughs> yeah, I was so like, I don't I never listen to the show that way. But I, I did that. So I'm lying in bed this morning at 730 or 737, or whatever, whenever it showed up. And that moment, I just sort of started crying because I, this is a person who, whether or not he did this, has exhibited nothing but, to Sarah, the most human, honest, candid, aspect of himself that doesn't even seem like an aspect. It seems fully who he appears to be, which is why I think that raising this psychopathology question is important and ultimately inconclusive if what the the expert she presents lays psychopathology out to be. We'll never know. He might not even know. He might know that he did it, but the way in which he can justify having done it if he indeed, indeed did do it is so far from his understanding of himself that it doesn't even, it doesn't it doesn't hold water to him.
2: Yeah, and he's in this impossible pr- uh, predicament, too, where no matter how authentic he seems, like, whatever he projects, like, the more genuine he seems, the more fuel that could potentially be to an argument mm. that he is intensely duplicitous and manipulative right, right, and right, right. so expert at, at projecting this facade. And it's just, there's no... And, in, in some way, it almost makes me want to think about, like, our entire obsession with authenticity in culture now and, like, Lena Dunham and stuff. And, like, you can keep peering behind facades and thinking like oh well this is the one like once I say this thing or reveal this thing like you will see the true me but there's always some someone in the corner saying no that could be just another projection no
4: it's like it's it's a classic there before the grace of God go I like God forbid somebody dig around in my past you know they have no reason to because I haven't you know I haven't been accused of 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 a crime this terrible but somebody digs around in anybody's life God knows the sort of, be. I mean, the the rumors, the rumorsness of this episode is also real. Like people just come out of the woodwork and are just like, yeah, Anand stole money. Thousands of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he stole my sweatpants. Clearly, this is, this is some sort of non-exculpatory evidence. It actually is incriminating. Right. So
1: as I said at the top of the show, we're going to talk with Mark Phillips, who composes music for Serial. And we're also going to give you some recommendations for things to watch and read after the first season of Serial ends next week. But first, I want to tell you that this week's Serial spoiler special is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment, information, and educational programming. And you can listen to content from Audible on basically any device, your smartphone, any portable device, your PC. If you can listen to me right now, you can listen to stuff from Audible. And right now, Audible is offering listeners of the Spoiler Special a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash spoiler, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. You can select any book as your free selection, but here's one that I'd recommend to fans of Serial, the true crime classic In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It's about the 1959 murders of Herbert Clutter and his family on a Kansas farm. It's a classic. Uh, you may have seen the movie Capote, which I would recommend as supplemental material, along with the great piece Uh, on Slate by Ben Yagoda, about the fact-checking involved in publishing that book. It first came out in The New Yorker in serialized fashion over four issues before it it came out as a book. It's read by Scott Brick, and if you have listened to a lot of audiobooks, you may have heard his voice before. He's a veteran. And that's just one book for you to choose from. There are many, many more where that came from. Audible has more than 150,000 titles. So go to audible.com slash spoiler. That's audible.com slash spoiler and get started today. So let's get back to the show. We're joined now by Mark Phillips, who's a composer for the show, and he also mixes the show. And Mark, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the first thing we wanna do, obviously we are riveted by the story, riveted by you know this case and the stakes involved, but also this is a wonderfully produced podcast, and the music is a, is a big part of that. Oh, thanks. And so we wanted to break it down a little. Uh, We asked you to pick a moment from the show, and I I believe we have a moment from the episode we listened to just this morning. Let's hear it. So that was lovely, just the music by itself, and before I ask you, Mark, about it, I'm just curious from Katie and Wesley whether it recalled for you the moment in the episode that it was used. Any idea?
2: Nope. It sounded like uh, emotional processing music, like tender, reflective, I feel feelings now, but I can't (laughs) say exactly in the episode where I came in. It
0: sounded transitional
4: like maybe after one of Adnan's calls.
0: Well, okay. First of all, these are compliments because if you rec- if you like remember the music, then that means I didn't do my job, and you were paying attention <laughs> to, the, to the music and not the story. So, like, the whole thing with the score is, like, when people are like, "Oh, I didn't." There's not you guys don't use that much music. Like, that's a compliment. So, 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 thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we actually that was the last cue. So that was the section where uh, um, Sarah was talking about the letter that right. Anand wrote. Mm-hmm.
3: He writes in his letter
0: that it's crazy making
3: quote I'm always overthinking analyzing what I say how it sounds and the fact that people always think I'm lying all this thinking it's to protect myself from being hurt not from being accused of Hayes murder but for being accused of being manipulative or lying and I know it's crazy I know I'm paranoid but I can never shake it because no matter what I do or how careful I am it always comes back
0: And it was a really tough one because it's sort of the climax of the episode. I thought it was like a really just fascinating idea. You know, he can't be how he wants to be. And it's like a really complex emotion. And uh, we tried a lot of different things. I wrote another piece that wasn't working because it felt too sad. We tried a lot of things. We we were thinking about doing no music for a while. And we came up with this at like, you know, I think 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. last. So it was like a last minute. Um, Last night, you were about to say. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, yeah. And, you know, J- Julie Snyder, the executive producer, I mean, she's, like, you know, a genius of, of editing and just pr- production and storytelling. So, you know, I, I'm, like, sending stuff to her. I'm like, does that work? And she's like, ah, not quite. And she's always just super spot on. And it's it's really just about, like, translating her, you know, what she's saying into like a cue, and and in doing that. Um. So, if the process ended, well, you finally found
1: the music that was right for that moment at at about ten o'clock last night. When did that process start? When did you know, okay, this is a, a conversation that listeners are going to hear, and I need to to score it. I mean, when are you first getting? Oh
0: uh, well, okay. They send me the episode at some point on Tuesday, and we post it late Wednesday night so they send acts and tracks so it's it's Sarah's uh like a rough assemblage of her narration and all the the tape all the archival tape yeah I'm one of the few people who gets to listen to the show with with no music and uh I can tell you it's like the podcast would be just as successful And like (laughs) it's it's awesome and I I look forward to listening to it every week and so I just have a moment where I listen to the show without anything and I just I try and listen to it as a listener, not like stopping and starting. So yeah, then I go through and come up with pieces, uh, mix the show, send it to Julie, and then the the revision process starts. And it's it's obviously needs to happen quickly because there's you know only a day to turn it around. But
3: uh, right, but like
0: I said, it, it's it's already starting. I mean, the storytelling and the writing are so amazing that it doesn't. You could score it with you know stock <laughs> like whatever I mean, I, it would I, be I
1: appreciate your modesty although I, I mean, certainly it seems like the kind of thing one could screw up I mean there you know mm-hmm. we've all yep. seen yep. movies and television shows where you know I think of Forrest Gump for instance had many other problems but there are scores that just, that just clash with you and like you said you, you, I mean it's interesting you say that you don't want us to think too consciously about the score because then you know it's distracting us from the, the, the story rather than serving it which is of you know itself a very kind of it uh, seems like a very modest or humble approach to the work.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean it's also uh the the other like major challenge I think is um because the story is so there's so much ambivalence in it like if I write a piece of music that is too sad or too happy or or whatever it, it's kind of directing the listeners to th- think this person is lying or this person is wrongly accused, and, and so, yeah, the the other major struggle, it, not just to be, take a backseat role and let the story be the story, but also to not uh, put emotional content into how people perceive it and and sort of guide them in one way or the other, and that's, it's it's really hard because, you know, music is, it's like no matter what you do, it's like if it's slow, then it becomes sad, and, mm-hmm. you know, if it's fast, then it becomes... You know tension, and so like it, it's really hard to to do that, and you know that's what I I'm always struggling to do is is not guide the listener in, in how they should be feeling. Is the theme music yours as well? No, the theme music's okay. by uh, Nick Thorburn. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, we heard we heard one piece on its own, but why don't you you know talk us
1: through another uh, piece of music that you've written for for the show?
0: Okay, uh, there's one that just to have a name I call uh, Janitor. Yeah, that, the first time we used it was the section on the man who discovered his body. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting moment because, uh, you know, if it had been super ominous, then I think it could have suggested that, you know, this, maybe this guy did it, you know, and I, I don't think that that was the, the tone of the narrative. Um, but it was that he's a weird guy, you know, he's a streaker, you know, he definitely has uh, a history that's worth talking about. So, yeah, this piece, for me, it, it has, like, a little bit of goofiness to it, but it's not silly at the same time. And, you know, so, it, I don't know, I was trying to uh, balance between having a little bit of, like, goofiness and, uh, you know, not being too ominous at the same time. And we used it uh, for this week's episode. And it was kind of an interesting moment because we used it when Sarah went to follow up on that one lead, and uh,
2: the one that didn't pan out the
0: one that didn't pan out, and by using that piece, we sort of suggested that this wasn't gonna lead to anything um because it doesn't it just doesn't have the tone of like this is gonna be like it. I feel like the music that
4: is a kind of emotional cue is usually at Sarah's expense, and I don't mean that it's necessarily judgmental of her, but I mean, I definitely feel like it's clued into her state of mind or her response to something particularly usually that anon has done or said to her
0: you know sarah to me is sort of the emotional center of the story like her she keeps going back and forth the more she learns the more unsure she she becomes so that's what i really try and focus on is sort of things that no matter what your take is you you can sort of know how people are going to feel about it um and there have been mo- you know like hey like there was a section a right. couple weeks ago and you know w- i think we're all pretty you know it's it's a very tragic sad thing and so like music that underscores that is is obviously acceptable and there have been moments where anon whether he did it or not is still a human being and there have been moments when he talks about his parents or i think it's okay to have a little bit of connection to his emotion with the music because even if he did or didn't, it's still what he's talking about.
1: Well, Mark, I want to thank you for coming in. And obviously, we're all big fans. Oh, thanks and, for having me. And, you you, you know, you've all done a, a wonderful job. And we appreciate that you're staying
0: up late every week and, <laughs> and making it happen. It's super fun. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: All right. So last week, we asked you, the listeners, to write to us, to write to us at podcast at slate.com and tell us things that you would recommend that people listen to or watch or read when serial's over, which, you know, as we now know, that that'll come next week. And we got so many interesting suggestions, everything from 12 Angry Men to The Thin Blue Line, the Errol Morris documentary, to uh, something I'd never heard of called uh, The First 48, which is uh, an A&E TV show in which, uh, according to a listener named Josh, follows homicide detectives on the beat solving, or sometimes not, cases. He says, not bad for reality TV. Also, uh, the podcast "Criminal," another podcast called "Stuff You Should Know," which has covered everything from how police interrogation works to how the Innocence Project works, what makes a serial That's a killer. Good, I, I like you like that one, Leslie. Yes. Um, I mean, one that that came from a lot of people uh, was "Murder on a Sunday Morning." This is a documentary, it's actually by the same director who made uh, The Staircase, which we've mentioned because uh, the producers of Serial have themselves brought that up as an example of something somewhat similar to what they do. Here's what a listener named Joe said about murder on a Sunday morning. Anybody who is even slightly interested in Serial absolutely has to watch Jean Jean Xavier Lestrade's masterful documentary. I apologize if I butchered that name. Murder on a Sunday Morning is about the Brenton Butler murder trial which won the Academy Award for best documentary. It's a fascinating film, but worth watching just for Pat McGuinness who seems to be the polar opposite of Gutierrez, i.e. unbelievably competent, smooth and as charismatic as any film star in the world. So that's Murder on a Sunday Morning. I also It's add, really good. It's oh, good right. you've seen it's, that it's, one.
4: It's it's incredible. And, you know, even though he, you know, he is dis Cynthia Gutierrez, you know, <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's an it is a stark contrast, but between in style. Well, so
1: what I asked you uh, this morning uh, at the last minute to to come up with uh, something yourself that you would suggest. so what what do you have in mind?
4: Well, I thought about a lot of different things that aren't necessarily in the same vein. Um, like I think a cry in the dark if you've never seen that before is a really wonderful. I'm more interested in these cases, not about like, whether or not the person did or didn't do it, but the but the state of mind of the accused, right? And so Lindy Chamberlain, who by the way, you know, there's a great postscript that you can look up um, at some point after you've like familiarized yourself with the case. Is the what she's the classic "dingo ate my baby" right woman? Um, that movie is a really fascinating uh, profile with Meryl Streep starring as as Lindy Chamberlain uh, of a woman who. It's just the question of like what the how a person ought to comport herself when accused of a heinous crime, in this case, possibly being the murderer of her child. but the thing that the movie that most people I don't think very many people have ever seen is a film called Cropsy, which is a documentary from two thousand ten about an urban legend It's the best movie ever made about Staten Island for one thing i think it's it's at least in the top three um, and it's about a series of Murders of mentally ill children unsolved murders by an alleged boogeyman, and so there was a myth of the cropsy who would come to terrorize children if they were bad and then children would disappear and the film um is just i mean it's it's a horror film i mean it's sort of promote pro- it's presented as a horror film and it chills you. It really is scary. And ironically enough, features footage of Geraldo Rivera, like doing his thing, right. like at peak Geraldo-ness <laughs> too. Cause this is a case that happened the ni- in the 1970s, I believe, or the 1980s. I should look that up. But, um, it's really, it's great. If nobody's seen it, it's like Nightmare on Elm Street, Errol Morris, um, your, your kind of worst, your worst daydream. It's that sounds very well it sounds amazing. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's underrated, very little seen, and extremely effective.
1: So what about you, Katie? Was there a suggestion on here that jumped out to you?
2: Yeah, so I actually had not um, read or consumed or watched uh, a lot of these suggestions. And one that people kept bringing up was uh, the Paradise Lost film trilogy. And so I just wanted to read what... Um, listener Isabel wrote into to us. She said, um, These three documentaries chronicle the gruesome murder of three young boys in Memphis, Arkansas, and the subsequent trial and conviction of three teenage boys, the West Memphis Three, for the murders. Since the completion of the last documentary, the three men have been released from prison and exonerated, although not legally. I would especially recommend this to serial fans because now it is quite clear that these men were innocent and totally railroaded, but at the time these documentaries were made, it was less clear. It's very interesting to go back and see which pieces of evidence seemed so incriminating at the time. In particular, this was a similar case of limited evidence, so a lot hinged on the behavior of the accused and how they were perceived by their community, the powerful effects of prejudice anger and a mob mentality clearly prevented people from viewing the evidence clearly and dispassionately. So, you know, I mean, there are places of overlap there Um, with serial, maybe not necessarily, but it does seem like a pretty interesting counterpoint.
1: Yeah, I I too. I mean, I've heard about those. I've heard of them. I've heard a lot of praise for them, but I have never actually sat down and and watched them. Wesley, have you seen? I've seen
4: all three and very complicated, feelings about all of them but i mean as a as a as a movie watching saga it is very gripping the third one is very good um i mean we don't have time to (laughs) (laughs) nuances of like what 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 some of the problems are with it with 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 the project um are but i mean i think for these purposes it is it is really worth the investment if you if you have the time i'd recommend them yeah
1: Well, those... Uh, certainly sound worth watching. Katie, what was something that you, that you had read or watched that you, that you wanted to recommend to people?
4: Well, this is kind
2: of curious. So I was looking over the reader email and I kept seeing Paradise Lost appear. And I wondered, why is everyone recommending that we read Paradise Lost? And then it occurred to me that it would actually be a really good supplemental text to this podcast because it's about, you know, justifying the ways of God to man. And in a sense about like the divine criminal justice system and like mm-hmm. the logistical and Theological and conceptual problems of all that, which sort of took me down a rabbit hole. And I thought, okay, so Paradise Lost, like that, sort of makes sense if you're into serial. It's a good poem. But what you should really read is Dante's Inferno, because Mm -hmm. that is going to take you. That is going to have this sort of wide-eyed narrator who is touring through horrors and hell and sort of going through and kind of reassigning humanity to these various figures in various torments. And like the way that humanity and compassion is doled out is kind of problematic. Like some of the sinners, Dante is incredibly sympathetic. Other ones, he's like, yeah, screw you in the fiery pit. Um, There's sort of the, the hovering question of whether this is going to be a redemption story, whether it all amounts to this sort of arc of divine justice. And so now I'm just thinking I really want to go back and <laughs> read The Inferno in the context of serial. So that's my geeky recommendation. That's
4: so, not geeky at all.
2: That's
1: amazing. I support yeah. that. Absolutely. So w- one thing I was going to recommend, which I don't think any listeners uh, sent to us, is a-, a book by Janet Malcolm called The Journalist and the Murderer. Of course, yeah. Mm. That's... And I was going to, to, to bring up, even before listening to uh, episode 11, Rumors, but it was in my mind throughout this one in, mm. in particular, uh, it, it starts with this uh, famous opening line, which I should have called up beforehand, but I will try to paraphrase it. Any journalist who's honest with himself knows that what he's doing is morally indefensible. That's the basic thrust mm. of the first line. And it's about the um, Jeffrey McDonald case. Jeffrey McDonald was uh, convicted of murdering his family, and a, guy, a writer named Joe McGinnis uh, got access to to McDonald and to his defense team and wrote a book, Fatal Vision. And the whole time, according to McDonald, he was, you know, McDonald says he was basically led to believe that McGinnis was on his side, that he was sympathetic, that he thought he was innocent. And then the book comes out and it and just portrays him as a killer. And you know, it's clear that McGinnis, you know, completely believes that he did it. And so he then sues McGinnis, and there's a trial. And so what Malcolm is writing about is the trial and about these questions it raises about the relationship of a a journalist to her subject. And rather than say simply, oh, well, McGinnis totally botched this particular case. He was not honest with with McDonald or, or what have you. She says, no, this raises serious fundamental questions about any journalist's relationship to a subject and what that relationship is, and, and we heard that today when when Adnan says I, c- I can't show you compassion and yeah. you know we right. we don't relate to each other in a normal human way. So. I, I highly recommend it. You um,
4: can read that in one day. Yeah, short. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not because, not even because it's short, but because you can't so stop gripping. reading yeah, it. She's it it's Janet Malcolm. She's the best.
1: Yeah, she's amazing.
4: And, and we did. We got
1: so many other suggestions. So I'm going to uh, write up a post uh, for Slate. It'll go up on the website with a bunch more. So I, I urge you to check that out. And for next week, I would love to hear from listeners about what they're expecting from season two of Serial. We, we know that there will be a second season, Sarah Koenig said on uh, today's podcast. Uh, you know, she said, thanks for donating all this money to raise enough so we can do another season. What kind of story would, would you like to hear? Are there specific stories you think they should look into? They, should they do something totally different? Should they do something exactly the same? Uh, email us at podcasts at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, we only have one episode left, I want to thank, as always, my co-host, Katie Waldman. It's great to see you here in New York.
2: Yeah, this is fun. Thanks.
1: And thank you, Wesley Morris, so much for coming in. Uh, my pleasure. Our producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of All Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Katie Waldman and Wesley Morris, I'm David Hagland. I'll talk to you next week.